Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this fifth episode of the fourth series, we're going back to consider Brexit. You know, in, in one sense, Brexit seems a pre-pandemic age ago. Brexit Day was the end of January, 31st of January 2020. That was before COVID became headline news, before the world went into lockdown. So, a couple of years on from Brexit, what has changed and what is still changing? To discuss where we are now with Brexit, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by both Lindsay Rogerson and Rachel Walcott. Hello. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Susanna. Now, for UK financial services, there were all sorts of dire predictions about the impact of Brexit. Huge numbers of firms were going to move, business activities would dry up, and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people would lose their jobs. However, while some things have moved, of course they have at least a bit, by and large, the prediction about the death of financial services in the UK and in the City of London in particular seemed to have been somewhat premature. Now, let's be clear, there hasn't been the bonfire of the regulations, which was one of the buzzwords at the time. But what we have seen is incremental, granular, creeping change. And looking back at our first podcast on Brexit, and that was series one, episode 12, if you would like to do your homework on it, we were expecting at that point the imminent signing of a memorandum of understanding between the UK and the EU But guess what? That has not only not been signed, but do you know what? Doesn't seem to have made much difference that it hasn't been signed. So let's start with where we thought we would be. So, Linz, where are we on any MOU? Okay. um, so it's just a quick reminder. The MOU we're talking about here is the political MOU. So that is the MOU between the HM Treasury in the UK and the Commission. So all of the other MOUs, the reg- regulator cooperation ones, were in place before Brexit Day and they are working and um, we are regularly told by regulators in both the EU and the UK that they have daily interactions with their counterparts. So that part of it is all working well. So the bit that isn't there, and um, I checked just very recently with the which with our with the UK Treasury, and um, it, it's still in the EU waiting to be signed. So it's it's all there. It's just the EU hasn't actually signed on the dotted line. And if you uh, talk to the Commission, um, the anyway, there's no there's there's no there's no time frame for this thing happening. So so to your point, Susanna, does it actually matter? Um, I'm sure it it. it would maybe make things easier, but the U- both the EU and the UK are still having conversations with other international regulators. So, for example, I pulled up the minutes of both the um, most recent EU US uh, regulatory forum, which is at the the so that's the one where the uh, participants are the um, US regulators plus the uh, US Department of Treasury and the UK Treasury. Um, on on the UK EU one, you've got the Commission, you've got all of the 
uh, ESAs, you've got the, um, again, the participants on the US side are the same. They're the US Department of Treasury and all of the big regulators you'd expect to be there. So, you, you know, so if you look at what's been discussed at these, um, they are, broadly speaking, discussing um, the, the same thing. They're discussing cooperation in international uh, bodies such as um, Basel, BIS, IOSCO, etc. They're discussing cross-border um, flows they're discussing uh anti they're discussing anti-money laundering measures they're discussing um sustainable finance they're discussing um crypto and you know uh, so it, they're discussing the same topics and so you can you can very much get a sense of the direction of travel and what's been agreed and what's been shared just from reading the minutes for the time being in the absence of a direct uk eu conversation along these lines so um and I just, I did also want to just flag one thing that I discovered uh, yesterday, in fact. There is a, a group called the European Forum um, for Innovation Facilitators, and it's currently chaired by ESMA. It has all of the ESAs and all of the e European regulators as part of it. Um, the FCA attends it. Um, according to the most recent minutes, the FCA actually was a presenter. So it's not even there in... in um, it's not, it's not even there in, a, in an observatory role. It is very much taking part. So again, on a practical day-to-day -day sense, I'm not sure that this intergovernmental MOU is the is the is making that much of a difference. So having said that, um, what we have seen and what we did talk about was um, last last time was that what we were going to see was despite all of the rhetoric about staying close and you know being scared of losing equivalents etc that things were going to diverge and you were going to have um divergence and so i know we're going to come on to talk about that but but what we have seen is lots of incremental divergence yeah and i think that's that's just as tricky as for firms to deal with as full on regulatory change because it means you have to keep tracking and Part of that tracking is with regard to how things have been, at least in the past, transposed from the European perspective. So, Rachel, and, and we're sort of entering into, anyway, a tidying up phase. So where are we on how firms could and should engage with this latest iteration of regulatory change? Right. Well, I think we onshore the... Uh, various EU regulations uh, prior to leaving the EU and some of the tidying up that happened was, you know, mainly wording. And I think that was done in the statutory in, uh, instrument phase. But what we're doing now is in, in the UK is going through various bits of uh, UK, uh, EU regulation, uh, MIFIR, MIFID, uh, EMIR, and seeing what the UK version is going to be, um, we, I'm sure we talked about this a little bit last time, but, it, you know, some of the things that have come up, some of these granular changes that Lindsay mentioned um, have to do with proposals around things like, um, you know, the uh, UK being uh, more uh, pro uh, dark pool trading uh more uh, interested in uh, allowing systematic internalizers 
to uh, still work here. I mean, that's a big one, dropping of uh, some of the uh, 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 best execution requirements, which is something that's been done to a lesser extent in the EU. So, you know, there's variations on, on, on the theme. Uh, another one that's come up is um, Amir. Now, the Amir refit has been in train in the EU for a while. Its final implementation is still some way off. I mean, it is a big project. But the UK Amir project uh, consultation only closed last week. And already industry has been highlight highlighting how these two timelines for Amir change are difficult for them and they are asking the FCA and the Bank of England for more clarity on timelines and also various points that have come up in the consultation. So th this is just the first consultation. Uh, then they'll have to feedback on it. And as everybody knows, then uh, they will have to come out with some uh, new policy statement or I'm not clear if, since this is a regulation if they'll have to go back to parliament or not but anyway that is a, a big one and it's all these little tiny changes uh, that we're that we're seeing so that are being confusing and having to track and I think just in terms of the Amir one the change program that needs to go around implementation is pretty significant it's going to be a lot of money and um, it's something that you're going to have to do if you've got an EU and UK uh, business you'll have to do it once in the EU once in the UK and then you're going to be having to manage any potential differences between these rules. And Amir is already really difficult to comply with in terms of trade reporting and all the other various elements of it. It's 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 a complicated, I would say, not really great regime. <laughs> Uh, then, of course, there's uh, solvency, too. That's been the big one recently, Linz. Why don't you tell us a little more about that one? Well, it was, uh, yeah, thanks, Rachel. So, so um, obviously, John Glenn gave a speech at the AIB's annual uh, dinner. That's the Association of British Insurers dinner and spelled out all of the things that the UK wants to fix about solvency, too. And it, it kind of got a lot of positive press around, you know, scrapping, you know, uh, a a bad regulation, but I don't think um, the UK is alone in, well, the UK is not alone in trying to fix a regulation. Um, for, you know, the EU is fixing this regulation as, as well. They're talking about you know, moving some of the same, uh, uh, removing some of the same uh, blocks that the, the UK is on about. And also, the thing that always makes me smile about solvency, too, is the UK did have a hand in writing it, you know, so you, you can't overlook, you know, it's not the UK is now free and fixing a mess it had no hand in creating, you know, that this, this was, um, but, but to our point today, you know, and how, you know, stay focused on how you engage, the, the, the point is, there are two sets of eyes looking at, um, fixing what has 
is widely acknowledged as, as, as imperfect law. And so you have to be engaged in those processes um, in both the EU and the UK if you if you want them to be fixed. And so and you have to it, it, certainly in the EU's case and you know the UK's as well, you're gonna have to evidence, you know, all of the things that you know have haven't worked and and how to to fix them to help lawmakers who are not uh, niche experts in insolvency uh, rules and where they, you know, where they have worked, where they haven't. And I know this is something you you have experience of, Susanna. That um, so you just have to engage if you want this to be right next time round. Yeah, I. I, I... I, I hear that completely. I would add a note of caution. I realise I can be a cynic, but I am adding a note of caution here. Um, financial services firms engaged totally with the MIFID process. And by and large, their views on how practical actually these rules were, were ignored. And that has meant that we're going into a whole nother change programme because actually those rules do not meet the regulatory aims that they were trying to. Because in their infinite wisdom, the ESAs in particular, decided that actually, no, this was not what they wanted to hear. They listened far more to, and certainly in some instances, the consumer groups who said, oh, no, no, we need it like this. And what happened was the business just stopped. That's not consumer choice. That's just taking it away because you've made it far too difficult to comply. And there's an awful lot to be said for both the regulators and the policymakers and the firms actually engaging with each other, but both listening. And I realise that sounds like we ought to be aiming for a perfect world. But unless regulators and policymakers are prepared to be perhaps a bit more flexible sometimes, we are going to stay on this hamster wheel of having to continually fix bad regulation. And the other, one thing I would say, though, is that there has been some very good regulation I mean, one of the things the pandemic showed was that the prudential things that changed out of the great financial crisis meant that the financial services firms around the world were able to damp the economic shock, not amplify it. And for that, we really ought to all be very grateful indeed. Um, however, I will get off my hobby horse on that particular one now. Yeah, no, and it's you're perfectly entitled to be on a whole other There's just uh, two things I want to flag um, there. One, the EU financial regulatory system has built-in re review periods. You know, so so it is. You know, every three years, you know, they have to revise, look at what's worked, what hasn't. The current proposals for the what is the system that has been put in place in the UK do not contain review periods. And that is something that the industry really might want to take on board. So all of the opportunities that um, you regularly get to engage in rule reviews in the EU um, are built into that framework. That's not disappearing. There has been no um, review process built into the UK system as it currently stands. So it's really something that firms might want to consider when they when they submit their responses and when they um, engage on the future regulatory framework. I know we're going to come back to talk about that a bit later, but I just wanted to, I thought it was important to insert that here when we're talking about changing rules. I just wanted to jump in and say that recently uh, the EU or the UK regulators have started publishing this uh, regulatory initiatives grid to give 
industry a better idea of when things are going to happen and what the timelines are going to be. But it's not clear to me how things get on the grid. So, for example, a while, for a while, Amir wasn't on the grid. Then it appears on the grid, and they have little dots saying, um, and we can put a link to the grid in the show notes. I think we've probably done it before. It's useful. They'll say, we're going to start talking about this in Q4 2022. Um, they have some codes. It, it's... I think there's room for improvement on that. One thing that's not on the um, grid yet, unless I haven't seen it, was uh, the market abuse regulation. And I've been trying to find out what's going on with this uh, in UK terms. So obviously it was on uh, onshore along with everything else. Um, ESMA reviewed or published its uh, final report on the bar review about 18 months ago. It's been issuing some additional guidance here and there, um, but I'm not clear what, if any, changes the UK is contemplating. Uh, the FCA hasn't issued its own guidance for... So people, there is some concern, uh, do we follow ESMA guidance or do we wait for the FCA? I did ask the FCA about this point and they told me it was a uh, a treasury matter, but I, because I, I'm not clear on how regulatory guidance, like the Q&As and whatnot that ESMA used to put out, how that's going to be transposed into a uh, UK context. I, I I wasn't clear on any of that. That so probably could use a little more reporting. Um, but uh, what I do know is that the FCA is looking to invest a lot uh, more in its um, market surveillance uh, activities. So people should probably go be going back and um, checking their MAR systems and controls. Um, yeah, I, I just to add one very small vignette in on that. Market Watch 66, which, gosh, was last year now, um, the FCA made very, very clear that market surveillance was high on its agenda, particularly in a hybrid working environment. And the potential use and indeed abuse of things like WhatsApp to take you know, proprietary or potentially even inside information and use that for personal account dealing they were crystal clear that they had that in their sites. So I'm hoping firms will have take, picked up that warning from even perhaps a year ago and have already looked at their oversight of um, how sensitive information is handled and where the tram tracks are. Because if you're not, and that turns out to be something of a gap for you, you need to look at that very quickly indeed, I would suggest. The FCA... Uh is always uh, going to take the opportunity to look at a firm systems and controls around market abuse. And uh, speaking about Amir, uh, or not Amir, MIFIR and MIFID engagement and implementation back in 2017-18, uh, that was happening at about the same time as MAR implementation. What I hear anecdotally is that firms have a lot more work to do on their MAR systems and controls and calibrating uh, the kind of rules that they're 
looking for in terms of patterns of market abuse? Yes, and 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 picking. I mean, we have we have in theory in the UK a data-led regulator here. So, but we are beginning to see differences, and some of those differences are there to be frank for industry to exploit. So, Linz, how is the industry choosing to exploit the differences that are beginning to emerge between the UK, the EU, and indeed the US? Let's exploit or opportunism. I think th- let's go for opportunism, okay? Or taking the opportunities where they land. I think that's a nicer way of phrasing it. Um, I've, I've got a couple of anecdotes I can share. These are actual examples from things I've seen, like very recently, like last week, today. Uh, so very recent and very topical. So um, obviously, we've talked about. We now have these tandem review periods going on and and tandem opportunities. And so um, obviously in the MIFIA review, uh, the um, in the European space, um, eFarma, which is the European Fund Management Association, uh, produced a paper last week, um, February anyway, I'll put it in the show notes, um, and it flagged a couple of things, but it was the language in the paper was very interesting because they actually explicitly said the UK has gone further. The UK has removed this. So it was in two contexts. It was in the context of the consolidated tape where they basically said, we're not going to be if you, we are not going to be as what you're doing isn't. Um, isn't as good as what the US has and what the US has had for for decades. You know, so rethink now. You know, and and use the U.S. example in the U.K. context. Um, obviously, nobody has ever liked best execution, um, but the U.K. has 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 done away with it. Um, what uh, the EU Commission is proposing is um, to get rid of RTS twenty seven, but leave RTS twenty eight, and 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 again explicitly, um, the European Fund Managers Association of whom many of the UK fund managers are members, um, said, um, you know, this needs to go to because the UK's done it, you know, and flagging that in as an example. Um, the flip round to the other side, um, what we saw with uh, last year's um, HM Treasury uh, statement on what, what they're thinking is about um, their, so their is sustainable, um, their equivalent of the SFDR. Um, so they're looking at product casterizations underneath that. And again, nobody's happy with where we landed in the EU space with these Article 6, Article 8, Article 9, and there's lots of confusion. And you know, you know, I've been told repeatedly by lawyers it's going to end in, in tears and litigation for misclassifications for firms. The UK is thinking of a, a rather than three categorizations, a two-categorization system, which um you know, and again, the 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 the, uh, the Treasury uh, feedback statement was very clear that firms had been saying, "Don't do this, do this," um, it, it's, and using the example of of a direction not to go in. So we we are starting to see very clear examples of industry looking for two bites the the cherry. So you know, you you're, you're redesigning legislation you don't like, rules you don't like. In both, in, you know, or, or, it's not just they don't like. That's the role. That's that's me being uh, unfair there. Um, rules that haven't worked, or you know, uh, as intended, and so it's important to realise that you can. That there is an opportunity here uh, to. 
to highlight other examples. And um, just today, the um, Association of uh, uh, AFME. Um, uh, Financial said, markets in Europe. Thank you, Rachel. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. They've used this line as well, which is underpinning that the, again, there it's the MIFIA proposals, that they are mm -hmm. undermining competitiveness in the EU. And the interesting thing about AFME's approach uh, or intervention is they've actually gone above the Commission's um, head and they've gone directly to the EU Council with their complaints and their wish list. So there's lots of opportunities to be taken here to f fix what hasn't worked in the past. And we are seeing firms do that or try to do that. Yeah, one of the things AFME picks up on, which IFAMA also picked up on, is the uh, uh, systematic internalizers and dark pool trading. And they, I, I think they make a good point that these, uh, on both the consolidated tape and the SI proposals, they are far too uh, friendly towards uh, the incumbent exchanges and trading venues to the um, detriment of uh, investors on the data side, um, and, for example, contributing uh, trade data to the con to a proposed consolidated tape, and on the trying to do away with systematic internalizers. Uh, the asset management industry will argue is not good for them. They cannot get large in scale on uh, venues, and that's uh, that's a big problem for them. They want to be able to do big trades quietly and be able to get a good price for them. It's uh, it, it. I I was surprised when I started hearing the other side of the uh, argument for that for the systematic internalizers, the way it was uh, characterized before Bifid 2 go live was that this was, you know, some sort of wild west free for all. But it turns out that there is a real benefit to uh, pension holders and people who have their money in these uh, in these things. Yeah, and I'd add in market making becomes very difficult, just very difficult if, if you've got to accommodate all of that. Let me just leave it there. That's not a rabbit hole we want to go down particularly today. Um, so switching gears slightly, but still very much in the Brexit space, the competition mandate, um, it has got potentially big issues left, right and centre. But Rachel, coming back to you again, the possible impact of that competition mandate, which we have definitely in the UK in a post-Brexit world? I suppose the impact of uh, the competition mandate that is now going to be a secondary uh, regulatory mandate uh, for UK regulators is that we... that they might go to potentially go too far in loosening some of the rules. And what I'm particularly thinking about is uh, the fintech, fintechs have been lobbying to on a couple of fronts. One is to make it easier for them to scale up here and grow their businesses. 
Um, they also have been uh, complaining that the proposed uh, listing rule changes, which are part of the wholesale markets review, and that uh, the feedback on that should be coming shortly. They're saying that they don't go far enough to lure them away from from New York, which is one of the big places that they list. And basically, what they want is some watering down of uh, the. Uh, governance rules allow them to ma uh, maintain a bigger share in uh, their companies. Some of the tech companies have been saying that UK investors just don't understand them, and that's why some of the uh, listings here that came out last year weren't that great or haven't performed that well. Uh, but th it's a it's a mixed picture. We'll have to see who wins out the investors or the regulators because as we've mentioned before the uk listing regime has always been regarded as being the gold standard i think um just to add to what you're you're saying rachel i, I do think though it's not yes fintech and you know we've seen it in the hill review and and you know this uh khalifa you know, as well as well you know and um but but there are a couple of two points here one Thankfully, our rules on SPACs only arrived after they'd sort of started to go off the boil in the US. And so that's, you know, yep. timing is everything. And two, the big institutional investors are far from happy about these tech entrepreneurs wanting to keep, you know, so I think that, you know, it's not... It's not just all gung ho for for this. There are There are voices out there moderating for common sense and as you say you know the UK listing re regime has always been like a gold standard and so I do think that there are voices advocating that that is not thrown out with the bathwater basically. Yeah. Exactly and I think that uh, people tell you that it's not the rules that are the problem it's just you know, the way the global markets are working at the moment it's it, it it doesn't really have a lot to do with the um, uh, with the listing regime, and they also say that the, you know, the proposed changes aren't really going to do very much to attract a lot more um, uh, companies to list in the UK per per se. Um, so I think that would be the big one to watch because the tech is one of the things, the one of the drums that the government has been beating very loudly and um, making a lot of uh, statements about Britain becoming a, a big, the biggest tech country in the world. Um, and just as a quick side note, there's been a big, uh, uh, kind of problem with technology companies and privacy. And uh, that's another place where we could potentially, hopefully not, see some of our privacy laws uh, eroded when it comes to uh, the UK's version of GDPR. Hopefully not, but there is some uh, government desire to I don't. I don't know how, if they envision the UK becoming some, you know, d data processing hub. But given the way things are going, I think um, 
the the public sentiment is not there, and the other rules with the that are developing in the EU around not rules, but what's happening post Schrems too. It, it, uh, I don't know if how how that would work out in terms of having people sending data over here and crunching it away. I think it would be very dangerous waters to step into, given it's crazy. pretty totally much crazy. everyone around the world has followed the GDPR blueprint. I mean, not mm-hmm. precisely or exactly, but it is very much the direction of travel around the world. And I think the UK, and certainly the Information Commissioner's Office here, is very alive to it and has oh, yeah. made some very sensible statements on it. Um, and actually, at the moment, has a whole series of consultations out. The latest one is on pseudo pseudo anonymization which again is on that spectrum. So again, another opportunity for firms to engage. So changing direction um, again, because there is so much in the whole spectrum of Brexit, um, the clearing war, um, well, we may have postponed it or entente cordiale, or we've just got armed neutrality. Um, Linz, where are we with the clearing war and everything, all of the joys that go with that? Uh Yes, Susanna, you you correctly uh, said it's been postponed. It's been put off until 2025. Um, I suspect we will return to it at that point or with the six-month window for notification of uh, serving people notice for getting off a clearing house. Um, I think three years is is too short a period to build a clearing house, establish a big clearing house in in Europe, but we we will see. Um, So stepping back and looking at some of those other bigger picture things that we flagged this time last year, reverse solicitation. Obviously, ESMA moved very quickly at the start of um, after Brexit day to say it didn't really like this. It's kind of not really played out like that. And we saw in... um, at the end of last year, we saw a letter from ESMA to the Commission basically saying, okay, we've checked and actually only Italy and Malta track reverse solicitation. So as we know, the European model is based around evidence-based changes. And so in order to kind of get a legislative proposal together to ban reverse solicitation, if that's where you're going, I think we're actually years off from that because you there's no you would need ESMA to be given a data collection mandate to collect the data in the first place. The actual national, uh, the other EU 25 that don't currently collect the data would have to start collecting it and reporting it, um, and then we'd have to go through a legislative framework. So I think for the time being, at least reverse solicitation survives regardless of what the politicians actually would want um or you know some politicians because it's not it's not universal across the board uh the other one which we are seeing which actually is going to be i think going to be an issue where um a battleground is on substance we'd had the europeans before brexit day talking about substance obviously we then had covid so people physically couldn't move but we've also seen it's not it's, this is another one that's not one sided we've seen the bank of england uh talk about substance in terms of branches and authorizations and you know and so it's thinking there so it's it's not one way i mean i think the easiest way to sum it up is um prior to brexit there was talk about uk jobs shifting en masse to europe actually what we're seeing is duplication of jobs uh, you know in a in a in a job crunch for financial services you know if you have to duplicate your compliance and you know it's, it's, it's i guess it's a good time to be 
starting a career in compliance because your jobs, your job, you know, the job opportunities have gone up. And um, one final thing on the sort of big picture piece is. I think it's important to remember as well in all of this that the uh, political dynamics in Europe are changing as well. So the UK always held the pen in a lot of the European legislation um, when it was being drafted. We're, the UK is now gone. You're seeing a power struggle going on to kind of take that mantle. Um, and in that dynamic, I just want to flag very quickly the Dutch-French double act that is going on. We've seen it um, most recently in um, in December 2021, where uh, they were jointly calling for um, a central database of passporting, a European database of passporting, and more action around home host um, relationships when it comes to supervision. Um, prior to that, a year previously, in December 2020, we had seen them talk about... Um, giving ESMA a role in terms of ESG ratings and rating providers and, ra and data thing. And that's now filtering through into um, legislative proposals that we're seeing. And so I think it's 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 another one that you have to read the muse, mood music on for who is actually driving in the driving seat of uh, new initiatives as they come come along. Thank you. Yes. And, and to come, we're reaching towards the end, um, to come from the bigger picture down into one piece of detail, MICA. Um, MICA could be very interesting for a lot of people. Rachel, in, I know it's, MICA is very much the future, but where are we on that? And could it actually set a benchmark for the world? So this is the uh, crypto assets uh, regulation that the UK, uh, sorry, that the EU has proposed. I'm not exactly sure where we are on the timeline for this moving through the um, EU framework. It's tied up with uh, DORA. It's a bit of, it's a big uh, package of different policies that were, or new regulations that came out, I'd say uh, probably almost two years ago now. Um, I don't see a huge amount of uh, evidence that this is being lifted and shifted to other jurisdictions. Uh, what I have seen is that the U.S. has made some senior leadership appointments at the government and uh, uh, regulatory uh, level to address crypto assets, which I think is something that the UK should do. I think that they should have a head of crypto, maybe they already do and they haven't mentioned it yet, uh, at, at the Financial Conduct Authority. I'm pretty sure there is somebody who's uh, heading up crypto at Treasury. They should, that they should be doing this. And, um, the eight, Treasury had its stablecoin and crypto consultation that closed at the end of last year. But according again to the uh, regulatory initiatives grid, they said we will respond in due course. That could mean anything. 
Um, meanwhile, the FCA is trying to hire people to bring in crypto knowledge. I've seen this in authorizations. I've seen this in policy. Uh, they, the FCA is also wading through still uh, MLR registration. So that's registering crypto firms for money laundering regulation purposes only. Uh, it's not authorizing them to, to be investment firms or anything. It's just saying you are compliant with money laundering regulations. And meanwhile, the FCA has been raising some flags about crypto uh, asset companies coming in to the UK sort of through the side door, through the back door, I don't know. So one thing that came up very recently, um, yesterday, <laughs> was that a uh, uh, Austrian crypto company called um, Bitpanda bought a UK registered, or so registered with the FCA under MLR company called Trustology, which is a crypto asset custodian, put out this press release said, oh, we're, we're in Britain now and doing crypto custody, blah, blah. And the FCA quickly put out a statement that said, him, yeah, we shall see when this deal is done. We reserve the right to revoke um, MLR registration if we think the ultimate beneficial owner is not a fit and proper person. So that was interesting. And then another thing that's cropped up in this space uh, in the UK is that Binance, <laughs> um, they have uh, got a new, pay they are been onboarded by a, a UK authorized payment platform. I can't remember what it's called. And they have been sending around emails telling everybody, um, hey, we're back. <laughs> the FCA also put out a statement about that saying, mm, we shall see uh, how back you are. But, uh, anyway, th this is, welcome to the world of DeFi. <laughs> yeah, and I think... Well, and, and this is another one of my hobby horses, I'm afraid. I think for cryptos, we really do need coherent international regulatory approach because otherwise the wheels can come off enormously quickly. And I know that's a subject for another podcast, but the Financial Stability Board is getting increasingly anxious about the ability or potential for cryptos to damage financial stability in a very, very dangerous way. Um, but as I say topic for another day. And with that, we have reached the end. Gosh, I mean, so much to talk about Brexit. And I'm sure we will continue to talk about the divergence and the nuances between the UK and the EU. In terms of takeaways for compliance officers, I mean, from my perspective, we have talked an enormous amount for the, about the need for firms to engage and to continue to engage. And I would emphasize the point that that's not just at the UK or EU level or even jurisdictionally from the member states in the EU. Remember that a huge amount of regulatory change comes from above that level. We have the Financial Stability Board that I've just mentioned. That operates under the Aegeus of the G20. That's about as supranational as life gets. Underneath that, you've got Basel, you've got IOSCO, you've got the IAIS. That is how most regulation 
regulatory change happens in the world, of course, jurisdictions interpret to suit themselves and all the rest of it. But if you are going to engage as a firm, and I would strongly suggest you do, remember to engage at those levels as well. And that may well be political, but engage in all levels of the process in order to actually achieve aims. The other thing I'd say is that we've talked about the difficulties of dual regulation, multi-speed regulation, rules not agreeing, regulatory arbitrage, all those sorts of things. Global standards are a form of simplicity. So if that suits your business, regulatory simplicity, again, engage at those supranational levels. Rachel, takeaway for compliance officers? Well, what I would say is if compliance officers haven't, and people, regulatory analysts, people who are tracking this stuff, if, if you haven't realized it already, we're in for the long haul. Uh, even once we get through this post-Brexit period, th- things will continue to change. And like Lindsay highlighted earlier, it is uncertain how that change mechanism is going to occur in the United Kingdom. Maybe she can talk about that a little more, but I think that's something to note. I mean, Susanna said change comes at the, also comes at the uh, supranational level. So that could be a way that it's filtering down in future. Um, But regulatory change never ends. Brexit has just been something that's been, you know, throwing some treacle at the tracks and making everything a little more confusing and slower than usual. Yeah, regulatory change is definitely the gift that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> Lynn's takeaways for compliance officers, poor beleaguered regulatory change people who have to deal with it. Yeah, I want to be a little bit more uh, sort of... Uh, <laughs> provocative Sorry. no not provocative at all I, I i just actually want to focus on on one particular thing and that is um the uk framework because for everything we've talked about here today and i know i said this um at the top of the podcast but at the moment it is not clear how firms will be able to interact and influence and actually just say this isn't working you know fix it in the UK framework, okay, it's it's not there. You know, um, on the one hand, they seem to be saying that the Treasury Select Committee can fulfil the you know a role of accountability, holding the regulators to account. That's you know, and and the Treasury Select Committee seems to be on board with having that without actually realising the sheer volume and knowledge of of financial regulation that is 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 needed in order to do that. You know, and so. Um, there have been some interesting ideas in this space. The House of Lords, um, when it was debating the um, Finance Bill 2021, had this idea about getting the National Audit Office to regularly review the FCA and the PRA against its objectives and see if it was, you know, how it was delivering. That may come back again as we move through this future framework thing. The other thing I want, so it's, again on the accountability piece, um, there. In the government proposal, there is a a proposal to create a a cost-benefit analysis panel. Now, at Monday's Treasury Select Committee hearing, both the FCA and the PRA 
were kind of you know, hinting that they're not really on board with this. Now, anyone that has ever had to input into a consultation will tell you that actually this is something that really has been a long time coming. And so I would just flag that the regulators themselves seem to be pushing back publicly on the government's uh, intention to give you know this um you know this panel which would effectively oversee the cost benefit analysis that uh, the regulators put into their proposals and that that is hugely important and so um i know we'll probably come back to the future of framework um in series 5 but i just think you know this is going through now you have to really, and, and this is for compliance to flag to their boards and their excos so that it is noted and it is it is it is done now because otherwise it's going to be too late. And the um, influence that you enjoy in Europe and to Susanna's point, the influence that you can you can have at um G20 level is all very well. But as we've also highlighted, countries change and tinker with the global rules and so if you know a good rule you know Basel 3 you know um, and uh, what was intended for the GSIBs ended up being imposed on everyone you know th these things are important and so don't don't miss the opportunity to be able to hold the regulators accountable in the future I'll leave it there incredibly wise words yes thank you and thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, I do hope you found it both interesting and useful. We'll include links to the, some of the pieces referenced in the podcast in the episode notes. I'll also include a link for further information on Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence itself. And last but not least, very much appreciated if you take the time to review the podcast and do let us know of any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.